magnify your name today. Isn't God good? Amen. God bless you and you may be seated. Great job, everyone. Um, Last weekend, I was in Vancouver in a conference that the Lord just greatly blessed. And then uh, during the middle of the week in Louisville, Kentucky, and a great conference for an organization of pastors, and uh, God really, really did show up. So I thank you for your prayers. I understand Steve did a great job last weekend, and everybody responded so well to that. I I even received a couple of emails right after the service of people saying how well that he had done. And I knew that he would. Steve's a great speaker. When I outlined this series and was praying about the direction we should go, what I felt like the Lord telling me from the second chapter of the book of Acts is that most people do not live lives in the dimension beyond average. They're firmly planted in average. And that's not what God wants. And I felt like the Lord was telling me and directing me that he wants us to live in a dimension beyond average in our personal devotions. And I'm I'm telling you now what the underlying mission of this whole series is because I'm deep enough into it that it can begin to unfold. I met with Steve before I ever started the series, a couple of months before, and I said, Steve, I want you to help us with this part of it. I want to talk about families that uh, exist, having your family live in the dimension beyond average. I hear he did a great job with that. I want to talk about, before I'm done, worship and prayer in the dimension beyond average. And I also want to talk about other things, uh, just living life in general in the dimension beyond average. There's so many things that I could cover with this. And um, I'm, I'm somewhat focusing right now on personal devotion and living in the living a devotional life that is beyond average because many believers in America have never had an encounter with God. And since 1994, when our church was visited, I have walked in the presence of God. And when I tell you that I, he has become my best friend, this is not being, if, if you've walked with God, you'll understand this is not trying to sound spiritual or be braggadocious. Some people are so humble, they're proud about it. You know what I mean? And that's not what I'm saying. He has become my best friend. When I am in the car, he's sitting beside me talking to me. When I'm sitting at a restaurant and you're across from the table, my best friend is right there with his hand on my shoulder. Uh, you, you may think that, that that's, that's being psychotic, but it isn't because I believe in the abiding presence of God. I'm standing here and he's right here beside me and I sense his presence. I am continually aware that he is near me. I can't function without him. Most pastors stay so busy, they don't have time for a devotional life. And I want to tell you that because of the responsibilities I have in overseas missions, which requires a lot of time on airplanes, I have the opportunity to to be in, in that little seat by myself with God. And I need that time. And I spend a lot of time alone in hotel rooms, and I relish, I cherish the time I have with him. I envy for you, I'm jealous for you. To have a devotional life like that. Because I know how impacting it is. I've told you so many times that if I could trade places with anyone, I would not. And if you knew how much fun I was having, you would charge me rather than give me a salary. And that's not just because of what I do as pastor. And because I train frontline leaders. It's because I get the, pre- the opportunity to be with him. And I found out that you can take him wherever you go. He goes with you. You can live in the abiding presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk today from Acts chapter 2 again. I'm going to read this quickly. Verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear, and don't think that means fright or horror. It means the awe, like, oh, God is here. The awesome, incredibly fulfilling presence of God. The awe of the Lord came upon every soul. 
And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions in goods and they divided them all as anyone had need. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with God and all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I would like for you to notice, if you would, in particular, how that this, these last verses of the second chapter of the book of Acts emphasize connectedness in groups. It, it does not emphasize single individuals, but devotional experiences are heightened and intensified if they occur within a group setting which is what makes church worship so powerful. I'm going to point this out and go through this quickly verse by verse. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. Then fear came upon every soul. Now, all who believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them all as anyone had need. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Fifteen times in these few verses, we see the Holy Spirit has emphasized connections among people. Some of this implied, other of it of, of these occasions are explicit in the text, but there is either an explicit or there is an implied connection among early believers that is emphasized 15 times and just, well, let's see, six verses. I want to speak today from the subject connected. Say it with me, connected. Father, do speak to us and let me get out of the way and and be invisible for a few minutes that you could talk to us, Lord, and you could be seen. I pray that you will be magnified in this house today in your, through your word and that we would be able to be spoken to, that our hearts would be receptive from the word of God that comes forth. We would be able to receive everlasting benefit and life-changing instruction. We ask it in humility and want to give you all the glory, and everybody said, in Jesus' name. Most of us are aware that faith in the United States is going through a very difficult and challenging period in history. We have some of the largest churches in the United States that have ever been uh, put together in the history of the world. Sadly, however, discipleship is at the lowest it has ever been. Maybe the lowest, uh, it's the lowest in years, maybe the lowest it's ever been. Part of that is attributable to what is called the seeker-sensitive model. About 26, 7 years ago, I visited a church in Chicago that had blown up, and they were having a conference, and it was on the seeker-sensitive church. It's not a term that most of you would be acquainted with, but I'll share it with you. Most pastors are very familiar with it. And what they do is they say there's such a disconnect between the United States average citizen and the church that what we've got to do is water down the faith to such a degree that we create what is called entry-level Christians. And so it's seeker-sensitive. It's not geared to go growing in Christ. It's geared to just getting people to attend. The man that created that, I could call his name. I've met him personally. Uh, he has acknowledged its failure all these years later. His big term in that conference and in other conferences that I've been in around the United States in which he spoke was making authentic believers, authentic Christians. Here just a few years ago, three or four years ago, he actually hired an outside consulting firm to come in and examine the church membership and go through and do uh, interviews with many, many church members and take a sampling from them and then determine 
if what he as a pastor had set as an, as an objective was being fulfilled. Were they moving from entry-level Christianity, which is basically, forgive me, just your ordinary pagan, amen. Don't mean that with any disrespect, but they have no values, church values. He watered it down to where you could come, become a part of the church. No church values, no faith, no morality, and hopefully over time it would grow. We have churches in this very city that are established on that very model, and they blow up. And people say that must be the way to go because they make the mistake of believing that numbers equate to a church. Never will forget what Jim Cimbala, who pastors the great church, Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York, told me when he asked me to, invited me to have a supper with him one day here in this city when he had come for a conference. And I went and he said, Richard, he said, God's using you. And he said, the hand of the Lord is on your life. But he said, I want to tell you, build a church, don't build a crowd. And he said, the Pope has a crowd. God's called you to build a church. And I've never forgotten that because that was a true North moment for me, uh, rediscovering North on the compass. And Bill, I'm sorry, I started to tell you his name, and I I shouldn't do that. The man that invented this whole seeker-sensitive thing, this company that he hired, consultant uh, company came back to him and they said, um, Sir, uh, we are sorry to tell you that your objective is not being met. You are not creating authentic believers. These people that are members of your church are no different than they were when they first joined years ago. There's no difference. They come to church on Sunday, but the other six days out of the week, they remain just like they did before they started coming to church. There are churches like that all over America. There are a number of them here. And they appeal because they let, you know, you believe whatever you want to believe, whether it's in the Bible or not. And we really have no control over anyone's belief, but they carry it to another place and that they will not ever preach things that are not culturally uh, accepted. The culture of this age has invaded the church. And that is not true around the rest of the world. Now what I have to tell you is the church and the rest of the world is exploding. Here are some amazing facts. In 97% of countries, the church is growing faster than the population. In 1972, there were 1.2 billion Christians in the world. Today, there are 2.6 billion Christians. This is more than double the number of Christians in only 40 years. However, the spirit-filled part of the church, those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, is growing faster than any other part of Christianity. The spirit-filled church in 1970 only had 63 million believers worldwide that were spirit-filled. In 2014, that has increased to 710 million spirit-filled believers. The spirit-filled church is actually growing 11 times faster than the rest of than, than the rest of the church has been over the last 40 years. By 2025, are you listening? They say the spirit-filled part of the church, that's people baptized in the Holy Spirit, will make up about 75% of Christians around the world. It is exploding. The Economist magazine talked about this in their cover article. The Economist magazine is one of the best financial magazines out there. And in their cover article in 2009, entitled, God is Back. I'll just stop right there because all you ever hear in this nation is religion is in decline. Faith is in decline. This is based out of the UK. And I want you to understand that the rest of the world is not experiencing the decline. Listen, there are few more easily ridiculed characters in TV land than Ned Flanders. How many of you know Ned Flanders, The Simpsons? A few of you do. Ask your young people. How many of you know The Simpsons on on cartoons? Can I... Okay, a little bit more. Okay, I have never watched an episode in my life, and further don't intend to. But the, car- the cartoon character, 
named Ned Flanders has the misfortune to live next door to Homer Simpson. He has a silly mustache. He wears jumpers. His first name is Nedward. No wonder we all smile, they wrote, with approval as Homer Simpson subjects him to one humiliation after another. The most risable thing about Flanders, the Christian in the cartoon, of course, is his bulletproof Christian faith. Equipped with a degree from Oral Roberts University and a simple-minded optimism, Flanders is arguably America's best-known Christian. Indeed, Christianity Today once suggested he is more famous on campuses and in schools than the Pope, Mother Teresa, and Billy Graham. Flanders, this character in the cartoon that lives next door to Homer Simpson, gets off lightly compared with other celluloid evangelicals. Evangelicals may make up a third of the U.S. population, but this is, this is one minority that Hollywood has no time for. Ever since Elmer Gentry, the phrase evangelical preacher has been a shorthand for hypocrite. Most evangelicals are portrayed as murderers, rapists, sexual perverts, with a consistency that if they were black or Jewish would get the American Civil Liberties Union into a lather. In Cape Fear, the anti-hero Robert De Niro is a deranged Pentecostal who goes down to his watery desk singing hymns and speaking in tongues. And oh brother, where art thou, an itinerant Bible salesman, uh, John Goodman, beats his kindly benefactors with a piece of wood and steals their money. Even the James Bond franchise got in on the act, casting a mega preacher as a lecherous, of course, front man for a cocaine cartel in the living daylights. The sins of Flanders are of a much milder sort. The owner of the Leftorium store, which is his store, for left-handed people is occasionally ridiculed for being intolerant. He once participated in a walk for the cure of homosexuality. He tried to baptize Bart and Lisa Simpson without their consent with predictable results. But for the most part, he is simply ridiculed for being, well, ridiculous. What other response could we have for a man who owes his success in life to the three C's? Clean living, chewing thoroughly, and a daily dose of vitamin church. But is Ned really such a loser? Look around the world and you find that risable old Nedward, or at least the phenomenon he epitomizes, has won one of the greatest intellectual battles of the last two centuries. And now, far from being put down, Flanderism, meaning Christianity, is spreading around the world, an American export with a potency at least the equal of the very Hollywood products that mock him. The great battle has to do with religion and modernity. They concluded that God is winning, and even in Europe, where the church has been dead, the church is gaining ground and surging again. Somebody shout hallelujah. Your professor's not going to tell you that. The politicians will not tell you that. In the book God's Century by Toft, Pilpot, and Shaw, published in 2011, Toft is an associate professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Philpott is an associate professor at Notre Dame. Shaw is an associate professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. The, the authors argue that the influence of faith is growing around the world even though it has diminished in the United States of America. I want to show you the rise and surge of Christianity that will demonstrate what I'm talking about. And you will notice that Christianity expands, and then it shrinks, and then expands bigger, and it shrinks, and then it expands bigger. What's this? Until today, all of the white that you see is now Christian. Can somebody say amen? amen. What I want you to notice is that every time an empire collapses, so does Christianity. And then it expands again within the next couple of hundred years. Every time a major empire falls, Christianity collapses back in on itself. But the next time it grows even larger. But notice as the scripture has said, there is always a remnant. The church never dies. Amen. God always has a remnant. 
In China today, there are more people who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit than there are members of the Communist Party. Over 100 million have been filled with the Holy Spirit in China. Amen. Indonesia's exploding. Africa, Latin and South America, even in Russia. Amen. Revival is exploding. In America, it started among the lower classes. And many times, your professors will ridicule the faith because it did start in the lower classes, but they overlook a historical fact. The reason it started in the lower classes is because when America was founded, remember that there were a few of the, the creme de la creme that came from Europe that were educated, the George Washingtons, the Benjamin Franklins, the John Quincy Adams, and all of these guys. However, there were no universities here. And so the next generation did not have great universities to attend. And other people began to come. They began to populate America with the prisoners from England. You remember that? People came here, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And mixed in with that, of course, were people who came from an altogether different culture in Africa, and they came unwillingly as slaves. But they, when the faith began to spread, you know where it spread? It spread among these frontier people, and it spread among African slaves, even in bondage. Because you see, what eventually broke slavery in the United States and the world was not the secular beliefs of man. It was Christianity. William Wilberforce went to his grave fighting slavery. The champion of the anti-slave movement. I've stood at his grave in Westminster Abbey in London, England. Not only him, but John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace was a captain of a slave trip and got converted, spent the rest of his life fighting slavery and wrote the amazing song that we sing in church by that name, Amazing Grace. And finally, slavery came to an end, but it was Christianity. Don't believe Islam stopped slavery. There are actually more slaves in the world right now than there ever have been. But they're in the countries where Christ is not preached. I wish I had a better amen right now. Amen. The gospel is exploding around the world. But even though it started among the lower classes here, that's not the case in China because their culture has existed for centuries and centuries, thousands of years. Ours is only a few hundred years old. And that, you know where it started in China? It started in the middle to the upper class. And it has become the end thing to become a born-again believer. Because after communism and the emptiness of not knowing God, people are flocking into church meetings and getting saved like you can't believe. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. And there are many reasons the church is exploding around the rest of the world. We could talk about man's need. We could talk about his hunger. We could talk about the emptiness of life without God. We could talk about the crises in his life that bring him to God. The failure of a marriage, a bad diagnosis, the collapse of his finances. But among those cited for the growth of Christianity in the world is the fact that wherever Christianity spreads, poverty is eradicated. Did you know that in 1983, 52% of the world lived below the poverty line? 2014, it's only 21%. 2017, only 17%. And guess where it is being eliminated? In countries that have become Christianized. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to say, thank God for the gospel. There's actually a term called redemptive lift that they have cited in theology. And, and in sociology, I actually read a study by a Harvard professor where he was at first of the conviction that when the Christian missionaries came to North America, South America, and Africa, and Asia, they were destroying the cultures of the local people, he said. That was his belief. And we should have left them alone to 
worship sun gods or whatever it was they were worshiping. In Africa, it's the water spirit that's the big thing over there or the snake or some of these other things they worship and all kind of things. 320 million gods, uh, 30 million right now in, in India that they worship that their theologians have cataloged. But you know what this Harvard professor went on to conclude? That Christianity, he thought, began to study thinking it was destroying indigenous culture. He concluded that the positive outcome of the gospel is that it lifted the economy and the poor began to be blessed financially. That's the promise of the gospel. God said, if you give, I will open heaven and pour out upon you a blessing that you cannot receive. Oh, somebody shout hallelujah. Sociologists claim the United States of America is actually 11 different nations in one. Put that on the screen if you would. In the dark red and bright red, you have the two regions called Greater Appalachia and Deep South. And this is where Christianity has thrived. The other areas, it's, it's in decline. Here is where Christianity still remains strong. And I don't mean to scare you, but just between me and you, Texas is in that bunch right there. Amen. So is Houston. And the, the, if America's going to have revival, it's got to start right there. So the good news is, I believe revival is coming. The bad news is, it's got to come from the people in this building right here. And in this city and in the South. Hallelujah. I thank God I was raised in the South. With all of its problems, I had a praying grandmother that brought me to church every Sunday whether I wanted to go or not. Amen. Regardless of what other problems I, I had, I want to tell you, God showed up in my life and he made a difference. But Christianity in America has declined in all the other areas. And I'll show you how serious it is. Did you know that Christians today give a smaller percentage of their income to God than they did during the Great Depression? In the Great Depression that began in 1929 and lasted until 1941, Christians actually gave more of their income to God than believers do today. Today, Christians give only 2.3% of their income to God. We don't tithe. We don't even tip. You give that kind of a tip to your waitress, she's going to give it back to you and say, you need it more than I do. 37% of church attendees say they give nothing at all. You know what we have become? We have become event goers. We buy a ticket by coming in and giving in the offering. When we don't come to church, we don't give. The tithing went out the window. And out of 247 million in the U.S. who claim to be Christians, only 99 million even go to church by their own admission. Only 1.5 million tithe. That's only 4%, if you've done the math, of the 247 million Christians in America who actually are tithing. Amen. Someone with a salary of less than $20,000 is eight times more likely to tithe than someone who makes 75000 So all of those of you saying, as soon as I get blessed, I'm going to tithe, stop joking with yourself. Eight out of 10 tithers have zero credit card debt. 28% of tithers are completely debt-free because God said, I will curse the devourer for your sake. It's not in the statistics, but the rest of the world needs us. Missionaries have come from America. That's how the rest of the world was evangelized. And you know how much we give to missions now? Two-tenths of one percent. Let me show you the way Christianity has surged. If you were to take the map that, 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 that you saw earlier and the way it surged and expanded and plot this on a graph, this is what it would look like. There are the collapses of the empires and the recession and the Christian faith and evangelism that followed. Another empire would rise, and then so would Christianity. Why? Because they were sympathetic? No, because God's army stood up. When we relaxed, we got in trouble. I don't think you heard me. I said, when we relaxed, we got in trouble. The last empire that collapsed was the British Empire. We have been in decline in terms of the Christian faith since then.
The good news is when you plot this on another graph, you will see that always, though, when the church comes back, it comes back stronger than it ever has before. Now watch this. They claim that America is heading toward collapse. There has never been a civilization that has endured. They claim we actually have another 9 to 10 to 15 years before our civilization collapses. The latest date for America, put that up there, in terms of its collapse, according to many sociologists, is just around 225 A.D. or 230 A.D. Amen. That means we've got another 8 or 15 years, something like that. And so we're poised, put the next slide up, at a way, at a place where we will either climb or decline because the American civilization has been in decline. I know that, I, I, I'm going to say this, and, and don't think I'm choosing sides. There are so many things I didn't like about Donald Trump and still don't. And when I mention him, I always get an email or, or somebody's asking me, how can you even say anything supportive of him? Well, listen, it's simply this. Remember, God called the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. And Paul said, pray for those that are in positions of power. Paul said that when he was living under Nero Caesar, the single most wicked emperor that Rome ever had. And Paul said, pray for him. That's what I'm telling you to do for Donald Trump. Pray for him. Amen. Don't cuss him. Amen. Pray for him. There's some things you don't like, too many to count. Amen. But on the other hand, the other person that ran, she was for abortion through the nine-month period. We're on the verge of collapse as a civilization. We need to do something or our nation is going to go down and Christianity will go into decline. There are four stages that a civilization goes through in its rise and fall. Number one is barbarism. It begins in paganism. Number two is civilization. Number three is decadence. And decadence is where America's at right now. Once it reaches the stage of decadence, there has never been a civilization in history that has ever recovered. Decadence is when traditional values are rejected in favor of no moral absolutes and of hyper-individualism. I made a typo there. Robert already corrected it. Thank you, Robert. It involves the enthusiastic enjoyment of what has been thought of as being evil. When they start calling evil good... That's the hour we live in right now. Listen, that's what you see on TV. It's what you hear in music. It's what's glorified in our culture. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. The last stage is collapse and fall. And as I said, no civilization in history has ever recovered once they reach the decadent stage. The cycle of the rise and fall of a civilization historically runs from 225 to 250 years or so. America's in its 241st year as a nation, and we're deep into the stage of decadence. If we don't do something, this nation will collapse. And with all the problems I have with Donald Trump, though he is the most church-friendly president that we have had in recent times. And maybe he has been sent by God as a Nebuchadnezzar with all of his flaws to help preserve the truth. We didn't have any options in this last election. And I just have to trust that somehow God is in control. I wish I could get a, a better amen out of the congregation. Listen. Are we in the last days? I used to preach about Revelation 13 where they would put a chip with a number in it under the skin of your hand. I see Larry Borner back there nodding your head. You remember those revivals I used to preach before I came to Pastor Tony? You remember that? Marcella? What's this now? You tell me where we're living. Dawn of the Bionic Age. This is from the Drudge Report. Body hackers now get chips under their skin. August the 3rd, 2017, just five, uh, what's that, Four day, three days ago, the chips will allow employees to make purchases in the company break, company's break room market 
open doors, log into computers, and use copy machines, among other things it said. It can emulate every card in your wallet so you can chuck your wallet away. Put your hand under the scanning machine, and it reads the number. Go ahead. I used to say this years ago, bye-bye, sinner friend. Goodbye, backslider. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Amen. You need to get in the church and get on fire for God. You say, oh, that's just one little old experiment. Really? It's catching on in Europe. Look, Swedish people pay for their train tickets with a chip in their hand. Amen. Revelation 13, 16, he calls us all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or their foreheads and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. We're living in the last days. Five characteristics of revival. Number one, if we have revival, there would be fire in our personal devotional lives. Fire in our personal devotional lives. Number two, we would minister to the physical and social needs of the underprivileged in the church. I'll give you statistics on that another time. Number three, we would minister the physical and social needs of the unfortunate outside the church. Did you know that if every believer tithed in America, that we could li literally eliminate poverty around the world, eliminate social security in the United States, we'd do a much better job with it than has the government in this country. And do you know we'd still have a hundred billion left over in churches to do the work of God as we needed to do it if everybody tithed, amen. Number four, we would a revival looks like this we would recruit and send scores literally of thousands of missionaries to the 1700 language groups in the world who as of yet do not even have a bible in their own language 80% of the work of missions has come from the united states but now we give 2 tenths of 1% how do we turn things around in america and i close with this i've talked to you about the technology and the business world that is called tribes tribes it's the newest term that is out there. I've talked to our staff about it for several years. The newest technology is working incredibly well in business, sports, and even government. Look, you want to know why Barack Obama won the election? He created a tribe. What was his slogan? Yes. Come on, shout it out. Yes. He created a tribe of people that were passionate for change. Amen. You know why Donald Trump won? Because he also created a tribe with this slogan, make America again. Why did Hillary lose? She should have been a shoe-in. She never created a tribe. She never connected with the people. Amen. A tribe has three very important things. A strong and shared passion. A visionary and active leader and a regular means of communication. Those three things exist. You can make a business blow up. But we'll never forget this cute co uh, commercial that I used to see on TV. And it was about developing software for your company, if I remember correctly. And it showed these millennials that were developing a new company. And they had got everything together and they were ready to go. And so they all gathered around the computer. You remember this? And the guy raised his finger to punch the button to start the company and launch it on the international web, World Wide Web. And when he did, they watched it. And the first order came in, and they looked at each other, and they were smiling. Second order came in, and they kind of high-fiving. And then 15 orders came in, and they were, whoa. And then it got to going so fast that the, 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 the thing that was counting the orders were going. <laughs> and they got looked at each other, and oh, my God. One girl bent over, got a paper bag, and was blowing into it. <laughs> she was hyperventilating. Because you can build a tribe like right now. Right now, you can touch people around the world. You might not know it, but did you know that the, just the podcasts from this church go into over 100 nations? We cover all 50 United States. We're in countries I've never been in in my life. People are downloading them throughout the entire United States armed forces. I have no idea how they hear about what God is doing and the things that are happening. One of my ministry sons, Hervoye in Germany, they put just a four-part series that I taught online on their, their church site. 
And in one month, 84,000 people downloaded it. 84,000. There's hunger out there. But the thing is, it creates a tribe. People begin to look. A shared passion. Apple's a tribe. <laughs> when they come out with a new phone, people sleep on the sidewalk to be the first there in the morning. How many Apple techies do I have here? Apple tribe members. Come on, be honest. Honest? Honesty? You can die and go to hell if you don't raise your hand right now. If you're, <laughs> Amen. Amen. Don't you lie. This is church. The roof will fall in. Come on, how many of you are a member of the Apple tribe? Yeah, that's what I thought. I am too, but I won't sleep on the sidewalk. I send somebody else to do it for me. <laughs> no, it's a joke. Not really sleep on the sidewalk, but I sure want one of those new phones when they come out. Amen. Tribe. It can be about faith. It can be about anything. It can be about hunting, fishing. It could be about shopping. It could be about culinary art, artistry. It could be about, about uh, all of these different kind of things. It could be about the things that you're passionate about because in this building, there are other people that are passionate about what you're passionate about. Not everybody, but there are some. And what works is to create a tribe where people come together what we do in the church is we go to church on Sunday and we're believers and members of a church and this happens at every church of any size. And then the other six days of the week we go live our independent lives and we're not connected. And the result is this whole thing that the guy that founded the seeker-sensitive movement discovered. And that is, is that we don't become authentic Christians. We don't spread the gospel. We live out there in the world and we don't touch anybody. And this is why 15 times in those last six verses, in Acts chapter 2, it mentions the togetherness, the verbs that are used, either implied or explicit. You see, the, and the pronouns that are used indicate, you look at the number of the, of the verbs, by number I don't mean how many there are, but the number like were, that's a, a, a verb that implies more than one person is involved. Count all of that in 15 different places. In those last six verses, it talks about the connectedness of believers. They also need a visionary and active leader. And I'll get to that as I close in a regular means of communication. Within that group, we build a five-fold ministry and allow it to function. Ephesians 4, 11, 16. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Five. Five-fold ministry. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak, say this, the truth in love. Say it, speak the truth in This modern church movement doesn't do that. They don't want to be called bigoted, biased, prejudiced. Amen. Because they're afraid somebody's going to make fun of them for the gospel message. Look, we got to preach the truth in love. You don't get to vote on that. If you're going to be a Christian, that's in your Bible. Do it in love, not the old way. Bless God, you're going to go to hell and bust it wide open. Hallelujah. That's not what I'm talking about. Amen. But you do have to preach the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit perfectly together as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Fivefold ministry, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. That's the concept that we have used through the years to build this church. I'm called, in other parts of the world, the first. People refer to me as having an apostolic anointing. That's about strategy and leadership. And I've never referred to myself. Not once have I ever called myself that. In fact, uh, I, 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 people call me a lot of things from Dr. Hurd to hey you. Amen. And I'm not offended. You know why I'm not offended? Because if they can call him our Lord and Savior, Jesus, I don't need any titles either. 
I'm not big into titles. I know some folk that are. I'm going to be the right reverend bishop, founding father, holy apostle of the first. And they're offended if you don't call them all of that. Amen. If all you got's a title, you don't have much. Amen. But that's the way this church has been set up. And we have the prophetic anointing. That was next on that list. That's, that's Robert Pace, who is our pastor of counseling. Dr. Pace has a prophetic anointing. He'll get with you and pray and go to prophesying over your life and give you courage. Amen. Can somebody say amen? And then the evangelist, that's the role that I've hired Pastor Irvin Clark and Marcella. They all work in this capacity, and others in the church do as well to help us to engage with people out there. And then there's also the pastor sitting right here on the front, one of the finest pastors that I've ever met in my life. Donnie Simpson has served this church so well. Amen. And then teachers. Joe Brazano is an incredibly good teacher. Michael McDermott also serves in that capacity of being an evangelist as well as a teacher and a pastor. You see, in ministry, you can have a major and a minor. Amen. You understand what I mean? Like you go to university and, and you get your major in one particular field of education, but you get a minor in Spanish or a minor in education or a minor in business or psychology. Works the same way in the kingdom. You can be an apostle, but you can also have a teaching anointing. Amen. And so that is the function of the role of the pastors here. And I could mention others as well because we have a lot of pastors here. Amen. But that has to be present in the small group. And I close with this. Because the apostolic role then. Say you got a bunch of guys together and their passion is to duck hunt. (laughs) I bring that up again because I are one. Amen. I got Cajun blood in my veins. And when it turns cold, I hear ducks calling. Amen. I can look up and tell if that's seagulls or ducks. Most of y'all can I can tell if they're geese. I can even tell what kind of ducks they are by the way they fly. You don't believe that? I sure can. I looked out over the marsh right there at Belt 8 going into Summerwood. There's a little marsh right out there and saw a flock of teal flying the other day. Amen. The way they swoop and move and they fly 70 miles an hour, you can't miss them. Amen. I know all about that. And you know what? If I were to set up a little group and get to duck hunting again, you know what I would do? Or deer hunting or bowling or any of the other things or investing or, or prayer or teaching the Bible because you can't have all of the groups set up in one way because we have different interests in the past. What we do, what we did is we said, we're the church. Come get interested in what we are interested in. And the good ones came, but the, the rest that were not so committed didn't. And they're the ones who needed to be a part of it. What we should have done is gone to them and said, what's your passion? And then join them with other believers who have the same passion and put Christ in the middle of it. And so if I were to organize a small group based around duck hunting, the apostolic function would then be to organize the hunt. Get the guys together. Make sure they have the right equipment, the steel shot, because you can't use lead anymore, and the whole business. Decide where we're going to go. What would the prophetic part of that be? In that group, there's going to be people that will need direction for their lives. And as you get to rub shoulders with them day in and day out, they let their guard down. The old days when you used to walk up to a door of a house of a stranger and knock on the door. Y'all remember those days? Invite people to come to church and they'd slam the door in your face. Cuss you out, all kind of stuff. That didn't work then. It's sure not going to work now. Amen. The evangelistic role is to bring an unsaved person along with you. And the pastoral role is to love the people that are in that group, working with them and help love them into maturity in Christ. And the teaching, oh, we always think that means you got to get the Bible out. you got to talk right now. You have to be sly about this. The teaching, and I'm using my little duck hunting analogy right now. I know how to call ducks. Y'all didn't know this Cajun could call ducks, did you? I know how to talk duck. Ducks talk a certain language. I'm serious. I know how to say come back. I know how to say hello. I know how to say turn around. I'm serious. I know how to say the food is good. Come join us. I can talk duck. A duck way out there, you hit him with a high ball. Wing, 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 wing. I can talk duck. 
I can teach somebody in a group how to talk duck. But while I'm doing it, I can also share with them my life and the love of God. And I can get connected and win them to Christ. Hallelujah. I can teach somebody how to wing shoot. I used to be a phenomenal shot. Eyes not as good now, but I used to know how to do it. If it's fly fishing, and that's your group, throw that, pop that fly out there and say to your buddy, you know, Jesus was a fisherman too. You know, he called fishermen to join him. How how you doing that? How you casting over there under that limb without getting snagged in in that tree? There's all kind of stuff we could share and use that as entry points to bring people to God. What we do is we sit up here in church waiting for them to come so we can teach them the Bible. And nobody comes. That's not what we have to do. Take the letters G-O out of gospel. It leaves nothing but letters of confusion. Gospel is G-O-S-P-E-L. You got to put go in it. Go. Go. Connect. And that's the future of where this church is going. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm done. This men's conference that's coming up, that's what that's going to be ultimately designed to create. An opportunity for men to get together. Because we men, we got some stuff we're not going to tell you ladies about. I'm sorry. We face some issues. We're not going to let our guard down and talk about everything. We, we, we will open up a little bit, but do you know what I mean? Amen. Would you come and join me? I want to close by praying. If you need prayer, we have prayer counselors here today that will pray with you. And I trust them and I would have them pray for me if I needed prayer. Now I've emphasized groups that do not have a spiritual focus for a reason since we're so heavy the other way. But understand, there will be some groups that will be all about prayer. That would fascinate me because I have an anointing to intercede. Amen. I want to learn the Bible. That would fascinate me too. But I'm sharing other things with you. You get your friends to come to the others more quickly than you would the kind of groups that I'm closing talking about when I say Bible study groups. I want to pray for you right now. If you don't know God, this is your opportunity. Listen, I was serious a while ago. Backslider, sinner friend, I'd get myself in church if I were you. They're putting this thing on people's hands right now. They used it for years with animals, and now they found out it works just as well with humans. I would sure be getting saved if I didn't know God. Because we are living in the last days. Would you lift your hands and let's pray. Father, I pray right now for this precious group of people, this congregation. I pray that you will speak to their hearts, minister to every need.